This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 490th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the top young stars in Hollywood. He's a British-born Welsh actor who burst onto the scene playing an East London juvenile delinquent turned secret agent's protege in the 2015 film Kingsman, The Secret Service. He then shot onto the A-list with his eerily spot-on portrayal of Elton John in the 2019 film Rocket Man, for which he won a Best Actor Musical or Comedy Golden Globe Award and was nominated for Best Actor SAG and BAFTA Awards as well as a Grammy. In 2022, his performance in the Apple TV Plus limited series Blackbird as Jimmy Keene, a drug dealer sent to prison who is offered a chance to be let out early if he can extract from a serial killer the location of his victims, has already brought him Golden Globe and SAG Award nominations and will almost certainly bring him an Emmy nomination for Best Actor in a Limited or Anthology Series or TV Movie as well. A man described by The Guardian as one of Britain's best young actors, Taron Edgerton. Over the course of our conversation at the Los Angeles offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 33-year-old and I discussed the importance to his career of Matthew Vaughn and Dexter Fletcher, who have repeatedly championed him for roles, the fortuitous running thread that Elton John has played throughout his life and career, and the greatest challenges and rewards of ultimately playing him, why he relished the opportunity to do long-form television for the first time with Blackbird, even though the show's subject matter took him to some very dark places, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Taryn, thanks so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, you. this podcast, we kind of go through the major moments of each guest's life and career. And of course, the first would be where you were born and raised mm -hmm. and also what your folks did for a living. Can you share that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born in the northwest of England, but moved to Wales at a very young age. My mother and my father separated when I was about three, and my mother um, actually moved to Wales to pursue a degree in psychology. Um, and she did that whilst raising me, which is quite impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and she then went on. I mean, she did a number of different things, but she ultimately worked in social services for a while so very very different from acting mm -hmm. my father um uh, also did a number of different things but um you know had a bit of a creative lilt in that he was uh, a musician 
Um, and, but my, my mother as well actually for a time designed clothes. So I guess they both had sort of creative interests, but not anything to do with sort of acting or storytelling. Yeah. Uh, so And then I was raised in Wales until I was 19 when I moved to London to go to drama school. Yeah. Yep. And it sounds like acting, it's not like something you were necessarily itching to do. Like some kids from an early age, it was more, I guess, acclimating to a new environment. Was that part of it? Yeah, I think uh, I moved a lot when I was young. We always rented houses. We never owned um, for financial reasons. And... Um, I think part of that meant that I had to move around a lot and there was a big significant move that happened in my early teens, which I struggled with. And to be honest, it was one of a number of extracurricular things I did in order to try and form a social mm -hmm. group really. And, 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 and acting was the one that really landed. And when I started doing it, I just really felt a sense of, you know, arrival really. It just felt like the thing that I was, you know, supposed to do. Yeah, and that was probably around 15 that I that I started doing that. I cannot pronounce this word of where you were living or the art center where you were uh, going, but it sounds like it really was a, a kind of game-changing thing being there. What was, what was maybe, if you wouldn't mind saying Aber it. Aberystwyth? Aber yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. Uh, but what was it about the Aberystwyth yeah. Art Center? That's, you're doing a great job. Uh, doing, okay, doing thank great you, job. thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, seems like it was a kind of formative place for you. Yeah, it was. And in fact, I still spend a lot of time there. My family still live there. It's still my home. Um, and it was, it was, you know, I was there for uh, consistently between 12 and 19. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was when I kind of formed my identity as an actor and that art center facility that you mentioned was where that happened. Um, and yeah, uh, I, it, it will always sort of be the, the genesis of my life as an actor. And also there were significant things like, you know, I had a great English teacher in school who really taught me a love of, um, who really made it all come alive, you know, the, the, the things we studied with him. And that kind of definitely informed my appreciation of the written word and mm -hmm. storytelling, if that doesn't sound too grand. No, no. So by the time your your schooling was done there, was it sort of understood among your teachers, your peers, that this was what you were going to pursue acting, or how did you wind up at at yeah. Rada? And that's not a not a small thing. No, I think you know it was that classic. I think you know I had great teachers, you know, and, and I went to a really great school, and they wanted the, the the you know the best for me. But it was that kind of slightly classic thing where I think they can be a slight victim of the institution that they represent because they tend to want you to conform to the more safe course of action which in the in the UK and I suppose indeed America I think probably to a lesser extent but in the UK I don't know if it's still the same but there's definitely a culture in school of, of encouraging children to go to university mm -hmm. um, you know there are certainly problems with that model encouraging everybody to go to university but that's what they encouraged me to do and I entertained the idea I thought about maybe pursuing a career in um, a, a degree in English mm-hmm I also briefly entertained the idea of doing a law degree, which wow. was ridiculous because I do not have the level of um, academia or discipline required for that. And I think in truth, I think what appealed to me was probably the performance element of law. Right. Um, that I quickly abandoned that idea. And I think I was um, around 17 when I thought, yeah, I think I should go and try and be an actor and... 
Yeah, so I I was 18 when I did when I first auditioned for drama school, and I auditioned for four or five of the big heavy hitting schools in the UK. So um, I did I, weirdly I didn't audition for RADA that year. Wow! And I didn't because I think I felt intimidated by it. I don't know why. I think that at the time it certainly had the reputa reputation of being the institution, and I was quite intimidated mm -hmm. by it. Uh, so I auditioned for Bristol Ulvik, Guildhall, Central, Lambda, and and maybe, I can't remember, somewhere else perhaps. Anyway, I didn't get a single recall mm. anywhere. And I, I think I was probably a, quite lazy in my pro approach to preparation. And I think I probably wore a, the kind of... I don't know. I was probably quite... I always had that kind of slightly cheeky, chappy thing. But I think at that age, it was possibly... I don't know that I was an appealing prospect to be taught. I think I maybe seemed a little self-satisfied, mm -hmm, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, so not getting a recall anyway was certainly very humbling. Mm -hmm. And in the ensuing... The, 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 the sort of the ensuing year, I worked. I just worked for six months I worked in a in a uh, a shop a store called um, Peacocks mm -hmm. actually <laughs> and it was kind of a budget clothes store aimed at older women <laughs> um, and it was not the most enjoyable episode of my life but it did feel good to have my own money and right. to earn my own money and then I actually went on a little trip to Kenya mm. it, crazy now it seems like such a, well it was such a long time ago on one of those kind of almost like a VSO course, you know, um, and it was good. And I came back and auditioned again and had much more success. So whatever happened in that year, I think I probably just an attitude adjustment from rejection. Mm -hmm. And I won a couple of places. I got a place. I think I got a place at Bristol Vic, Rada, and also the Welsh College, which is where I, I had intended to go. Mm -hmm until I got a place at RADA. And funnily enough, I got a place at RADA very, very late. I was the last person in my year to win a place. How many would they have in a year? I'm trying to 28. Remember. Wow. 28. And I think they auditioned north of 4,000. So it's wow. very selective, yeah. Wow. Um, and um, I always remember, I was. we lived in a bungalow at the time. It was the first home that we'd ever owned. And I was in the kitchen and my mum was outside the window watering the plants in the garden. And I, the phone rang and I saw it was a London number. And I just thought, oh my God. Um, and I looked out the window and my mum was looking at me and she was mouthing, is it Rada? Is it Rada? <laughs> and I was going, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and um, it transpires that what I was told later is that the reason I was offered the place so late was because they had kind of been very on the fence about offering me a place because they still felt I was too young. Um, but they had, I think they'd somehow, they knew that I'd been offered a place somewhere else and they wanted me to go there, which is very, very, very flattering. That's great. Yeah. But they were, it was kind of a backhanded compliment because they were also saying, you're not really ready or mature enough for this, <laughs> but we would like you to come here. Um, and I did, I found it hard. I, fa I do, I think I was too young for it. I wasn't um, kind of emotionally mature or equipped enough. Now, were most of the kids older there? Certainly, yeah. I was uh, what at that point? I was nineteen, yeah. and I think there might have been two eighteen-year-olds, 
but the, they tended to be in the kind of 25 to 30. Oh, wow. So there was a, a few Oxbridge graduates and people who'd had former lives. There was a guy who'd done some military time and it was mu generally people who had more life experience and were a little more worldly. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that hard, I think. I felt a bit inferior when I was there and I've always looked young anyway. And um, although less so now, it's starting to show a little bit in my face. I can't claim that anymore. But for a very, very long time, I did look very boyish. Um, and I think I felt a bit of an inferiority complex when I was there. I, it was a challenging time, but I took a lot from it. Now, just to confirm or rebut the legend, what did your audition entail for Rada? Um, so I did... I can't remember my modern speech, but I definitely did Edmund, Thou Nature Art My Goddess, from King Lear, and I sang your song. Okay. Totally. Was that the song you'd always loved, or what was the... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was very... Um, my... I, I didn't really... I didn't express a great deal of interest in more modern music until I was a bit older. I During my teens, I was very... And still am very into... Soul, Motown, classic 60s rock and pop. So I was, you know, really into, you know, Otis Redding, mm -hmm. The Four Tops, uh, The Drifters, Elton John, David Bowie, uh, The Beatles. Um, you know, I was, a, a, I was an old soul in that regard. Yeah. And Elton was one of my guys. And I think the reason I picked that song and the reason why I think... Rocketman worked as a musical is because what Bernie writes is quite there's a poetry to it but it's also quite a lot of the time feels quite verbatim and your song is certainly that it's it's an address you can kind of you can kind of perform it as as a as a you know you can act through song sure. is what I'm saying which is why I think those songs lent themselves to a musical yeah well, so you graduated from RADA in 2012. I just want to list, correct me if this is wrong, but sort of the sequence of events within a pretty short amount of time. Play at the National Theater, TV role on ITV, Lewis. Mm. Play at Royal Court, TV role on Sky One, The Smoke. And then, for I guess, for the first time you hear about this potential spy spoof. Yeah. Kingsman. Again, you're you're just out of school relatively. Yeah. Uh, you had not done film work, I believe, up at that at that point. No, no. Where does this come from? Um, so when I was at RADA, I was I was really lucky. I got a really good role, a supporting role in my first play of the third year, and it was suited me. And that was always the thing about being cast at drama school because, unfortunately, where I benefited from being one of the younger ones, it meant that I got roles that were age appropriate because. Agents and casting directors, for some reason, are often in that environment not able to look past a 27-year-old who's playing someone who's 65. It just never yields results for young student actors in terms of getting representation, and that never happened to me. So I got a lot of interest. I was really, really lucky. Um, and I was able to... <laughs> I was always a bit of a wheeler-dealer. I was able to leverage that interest <laughs> to get the person who I wanted to sign me to sign me. So Lindy King, who is a legend in the industry and, uh, and, and in, certainly in London, she is the kind of premier London agent and has taken Ewan McGregor, Keira Knightley, Tom Hardy from, from Whippersnapper to Star and she represents the likes of Olivia Coleman and all sorts of incredible people. 
I emailed her and said, I've got interest from these people. They're all lovely, but I want to work with you. Mm -hmm. And I think she admired my goal, yeah. my 22-year-old <laughs> lip. And um, anyway, I, I, this is all preamble to say that having Lindy King in your corner meant that I got seen for stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, when I was doing that Sky One show, I got an email through. I remember exactly the street corner I was on <laughs> in Hoban. I remember it the exact spot. And I got an email through, and it said Huntsman and Son, which was the working title for Matthew Matthew's Kingsman movie. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who was in it. I knew who Matthew Vaughan was dimly because I'd seen Layer Cake and I'd seen Kick-Ass. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was a big deal. And I was being invited out to Leavesden to test, which was also quite... I'd not done that. I'd not done the whole go to a studio thing. So it was quite exciting. And I opened the um, attachment and there were two scenes. I didn't get the script. I got two scenes. One was the scene with Harry Hart uh, where um, I meet him in the pub. And I, it sounds like ar arrogance, this, and maybe it is, but I read it and I just knew that I was the person to play the role. This is just to remind folks, Eggsy Unwin, East London juvenile delinquent, yeah. who is recruited to join a spy, a secret agent, played by Colin Firth. First one in 2015, second one in 2017. I guess one of the things I'd read was that Colin Firth was somebody who you really had on a pedestal going into this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, when I turned up at the audition, I didn't know he was going to be playing that role. And they told me just before I tested. Um, but I'd, I'd called my mum before I went in. It was weird because that's not the kind of thing that I would always do. But I just knew that there was a moment happening in my life and it was an opportunity that wasn't going to come along very often. And I just felt that it was gonna that I had an opportunity to completely change my life. I know that sounds a little bit no um sugary and uh, sentimental, but it is how I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they told me that Colin was playing Harry Hart and that Michael Caine was playing Arthur characters called I think. And um and you know, the feeling was I don't know. I just, every sort of fiber of my being was alive and ready. It was like a kind of fight or flight thing. It was like, oh my word, this. And I knew, I could tell from those pages. I know, I, like, I, I knew it was going to be good. I knew it was, a spe it was a moment and it was going to be something that people watched and enjoyed. And how soon after that audition did you find out you got it? A while. Matthew put me through my paces. It was like five or six weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were looking at another actor that the studio wanted. The studio preferred another actor, and Matthew had to fight for me, I think. Um, uh, but I think purely because I, I was really unproven. I hadn't done anything. Had you – I wondered, like, obviously, I don't believe at that time any movies had come out, but had you made – had you – No. Like, nothing? No, hadn't made anything. I hadn't been – I hadn't – the, the other things that came out before Testament and Youth and yeah. Legend, they came they they came after, and I was seen for those things in part because the industry knew that I had this big. So I went and met J.J. Abrams for uh, John Boyega's role in Star Wars. Oh wow! And he, as I remember, as I left the room, having completely fucked it up. <laughs> um, he said, by the way, congratulations on everything that's happening to you. And it was like, wow, JJ knows that I've done this movie. Yeah. He said, it wasn't out. And it was like, wow, this is weird. Well, is starting, um, yeah. But it was really exciting. Yeah. You know, it was an exciting time for me in, in my life. And um, yeah, but Matthew put me through my paces. I did a number of tests. They were trying to get me to test with Colin, but he was doing a Woody Allen movie. Um, and uh, yeah. I have to follow up though. So you say you completely fucked up the Star Wars edition. How did that, what, what happened? I don't know. 
I think there's a weird thing that happens. I love Star Wars. I've got a 1977 British movie poster above my bed. Wow. But I read that scene and I thought, I'm not the right guy to do this. And I feel that all the time. I still do. And with Eggsy, it was, you know, because funnily enough, John Boyega was one of the absolute last actors in the running for that as well. Eggsy, wow. And that, you know... That wasn't his role, it was my role, mm -hmm. and I feel that strongly. Mm -hmm. But the role that he got in Star Wars, that was not my role. It was his role, and I really believe that. People are right for things, and I, I don't, you know, I, that's, it's hard to quantify that, and maybe that's something that's in my mind. No, it's, it's interesting. Subjective, but it's how I feel. So it wasn't that long, I think, after Kingsman that you would have done Eddie the Eagle, mm. and that's where I know, among other things, like, I think, from what I read, you were kind of struck by the work ethic and the physical workout ethic of Hugh Jackman. But you had already gotten ripped for Kingsman, right? So what? Not those two things had nothing to do with each other? No, no. I mean, Matthew just wanted me to be in the best shape I could be for Kingsman and really, really, really drummed it into me and really <laughs> indoctrinated me. And I felt like a competition winner. And I was honestly terrified every day he was going to recast me. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really, really disciplined about what I put in my body and worked out every day and worked myself to the bone. Um, and then at the end of shooting that, Matthew asked me, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to do something where I don't look good. Because I never really was particularly interested in being the kind of actor that always looks preened and perfect, which is lucky because I can't. <laughs> um, and... He brought me that script, Eddie the Eagle. He still made me work for it, made me go and test. Because, right. you know, the thing about Matthew Vaughan, as much as I love him, you have to kind of do your thousand hours of graft <laughs> before he trusts you and starts giving you stuff for free. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, and then went and did that with Hugh. But in the meantime, Kingsman, first Kingsman, comes out, giant hit around the world, $414 million gross. Did you find immediately that the caliber of opportunities that were being offered to you exploded depends how you define it yeah it depends how you define it because not not it was not i wasn't immediately getting like I, for example you know like paul mescal in terms of the work that he you know he's he's got such an, an output of interesting independent cinema and you know my that's a that's a wonderful path and the grass is always a little bit greener i was you know i'd love more of that mm -hmm. i was immediately asked about basically other big fox franchises and you know big reboots and big bits of ip that they needed to put a young capable proven guy at the center of but was not always that interesting mm -hmm. so i passed on most of that mm -hmm. Um, which I'm glad about, you know, and the moments where I where I didn't pass and I was lured by whatever those things lure you in with, um, I regretted it. So, you know. Well, only because you've spoken about it before and it makes sense. Like, first of all, as you said, like, you didn't grow up rich. It was if you get an opportunity to make a few bucks. Yeah. Like, you've said that with, I think, all around the same general time, Billionaire Boys Club and Robin Hood were both came out in 2018, so would have been yeah. in the aftermath of Kingsman. Yeah. Not to, like, yeah. knock anything you've done, but, like, that you've said because yeah. they were, they underperformed in certain senses. Mm. That was, you feel, because you took something for a reason I, you shouldn't have. Yeah, it's like for the wrong reason. And I don't make any bones about that. And I don't think it's, I don't, 
feel, I'm not embarrassed that I've said that. In some respects, I feel that it may be unfair to the other people involved who also work very hard, but I'm not being disparaging about any of those individual components. Both of those projects had very talented people involved, but I do believe they were ill-conceived and I do believe they were badly shepherded. Um, and I also believe that I, I knew that on some level when I signed on to them. So two questions that, again, kind of come back to like that um, Rada audition kind of uh, trivia question here. With Sing, which was 2016, basically right after the first Kingsman, mm. you – well, first let's go back to the, the, the first Kingsman, I believe. I'm trying to keep it straight. The, yeah, yeah. Elton John has a cameo. That's in the second one. In the one. second one, yeah, which yeah. is 2017. Mm. So even before that – in Sing, which comes out in 2016, yeah. you sing I'm Still Standing. Yeah. Again, with both of those things, total coincidences? Total coincidence. That's insane. That's total coincidence. So I auditioned for something called Lunch Project, which was the working title of Sing mm -hmm. in, a, in 2015. Of the core cast, I think I'm the only one who auditioned. Maybe Tori, but it wasn't something I was offered. They needed a young, they wanted one young British guy in it in this cast of otherwise American roles, and it was to play the uh, bank-robbing young Cockney gorilla. gorilla. <laughs> and I uh, and I thought, oh, wow, it's great. I've always loved animated films, mm -hmm. and it just seemed like a great opportunity. So I went along and I auditioned, and I gave, I, I didn't do what, I, did, I didn't sing any of the things that they wanted me to sing. I went in and said, oh, I'm gonna sing these arms of mine. <laughs> and I think Garth liked me not singing from the hymn sheet, as it were, <laughs> and uh, and offered me the role pretty much there and then. But I didn't know again that it was. I didn't know any of the people who were attached to do it. I had no sense that it was going to go on to be such a high performing thing. And um, but it's honestly that's one of. I'm so proud to be a part of that franchise. Yeah. I love those two movies, and in fact, I put I, the second one. I actually prefer. I just think they're so great. Just to remind people, first one 2016, second one 2021. But in those intervening years, a lot was going on. I think pretty soon after then the first thing. So you have as you you know the two movies that we just mentioned, which may have. I don't know if you felt, were you concerned that the underperformance of those 2018 movies might have... Uh, yeah, when Robin Hood came out, yeah. I sat down and had dinner with my manager in London, and I'd just seen a cut of Rocketman with Dex that was wobbly. And, 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 and Robin Hood had just come out, and I remember I sat down with my manager, Mick Sullivan, and I said... <laughs> uh, He's, I'm incredibly close to him. We have a very straight relationship. And we sat down at dinner, and Robin Hood had just come out, and and it was bad, you know. They're, they're like in the age of theatrical releases, right. of which I was one of the very last leading men, True. I suppose, True. you know. Um, a flop is not good, particularly when you're not a cemented brand, as I wasn't. I'm still not a big, big banner name, you know, and... At that stage, it was bad to have Robin Hood come out and perform like that. It was not good. Anyway, but we all had this kind of, well, look, Rocketman's coming, so it's going to be okay. And I'd just seen this cut. I sat down <laughs> with Mick, and he went, so how is it? And I said, I, I don't know, man. And I will <laughs> never forget the look on his face, because in his head it was, 
oh shit this might be it Third you know strike, yeah. yeah you you know one's bad enough a couple can sink you yeah. you know but if you're not a thing yet it can sink you sure um anyway as it transpired dex pulled his finger out and sorted it out um <laughs> and um and it turned out to be you know i saw it again a few weeks later and and uh yeah i was just you know just so pleased with it yeah no it's amazing and i guess though the, so because so many of these things seem to be overlapping the first time you ever heard of the possibility of rocket man being something <laughs> you would be a part of how far back and did that go and what was what were the circumstances well, here's what's weird yeah. is that i being me i share um i share reps with tom hardy uh, and i heard about it and it was when he was attached to do it i sent them all an email in about 2014 15 saying is tom still doing this because <laughs> is there a tape i can do or something and they emailed me back unequivocally saying Nope, he's doing it. Um, put it out of my mind. And then about three, two or three years later, on the set of Kingsman 2, Matthew approached me and said, how would you, what do you think about um, Rocketman? Would you ever want to do that? And I said, well, Tom's doing it. He said, well, I think it's time's pressing on. He's in his late 30s and he starts, he's 17 at the start of it. He's getting too old. And I said, well, you know, if it's, a, if it's an opportunity, then yeah. So it was around that time, and I think it was born of the fact that Matthew was forming a friendship with Elton and David. Well, that's what I was – again, These some of these things where I'm asking you, is this just a coincidence? It's because it is kind of It sort of all is, right? It sort of like, all is, really, you have yeah. Matthew is a producer of yeah. Rocketman, and Dexter, who had done uh, Eddie. Eddie the Eagle with you, that they were both on before you said yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. No. On Eddie, uh, no, on Eddie, I was on before Dex. No, 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 but I mean, they were on to Rocketman before you yes. said yes. So these guys who you'd worked with, that was coincidence. it just kind of all came together. And me having expressed an interest to my team about it yeah. in a very upstart way because I was absolutely not in a position to be leading a movie about <laughs> Elton John. Right. It was only through my connection with Matthew and him championing me and him having clout as a, as a, as a, as a financier as right, well as right. a producer, filmmaker, that's the only reason it happened. I mean, Elton and David, I don't think, were initially convinced. Even though they'd they'd heard me sing I'm Still Standing, but I don't think they it made total sense to them that I would be a good candidate f for Elton. Well, were you yourself convinced that you had the vocal chops to do this? Because, yeah, as you said, you, you know, as we talked about, you'd sung in uh, a little bit for an audition at RADA, you'd sung in Sing, but, like, I don't know, were pe did people know you as a guy who was a singer as well as an actor? It wasn't really the singing that stressed me out. It was, it was the reason I felt I could do it was because I felt the, um, the sort of major key extremes of Elton's personality was something that I felt I could do. Mm -hmm. I know that I've got, I know, he always says that we're cut from the same cloth. I mean, I think, you know, I've historically kept a bit of a better lid on my crazy than Elton has, <laughs> but there is, I know that I, I knew that I could do that, that choleric, quick to change, but also he's so, he's a very sensitive, soft person as well. And there was something about that duality that I felt I'd be good for the, you know, 
the vulnerability of it and also you know, I don't know if he'd thank me for this, but the way I always thought of Elton and in that movie is as a he's a king, you know, he's a sort of he's a kind of a, a king made mad by his environment, you know, and, and that's I that appealed to me at the sort of the kind of slightly you know, I'm gesticulating here, which is not very good for a podcast, but you, you know what I'm saying. Totally. The extremity of And him. so you of course I I imagine this was not gonna happen without his sign off. What was how did your um, kind of, I don't know, courtship's the right word, but like, how did that work where he got on board? What did that take? And I went to sit down with him at his house and uh, we had takeaway curry together. We both love Indian food. And um, and that was a kind of interview, I think, sort of, although it was never addressed to me that way. And then we did in February of 2018, we did this thing at... Um, uh, at um, Abbey Road where I went into a studio and sort of mock played piano and sang live in one of the studios and they filmed it uh, with Giles Martin and David Furnish and Matthew Vaughan and Dexter and, you know, lots of people present. And it was, I think it was partly to demonstrate to Paramount that that, that I was able to do it. Because you weren't signed yet. Uh, no, no, I wasn't. We were probably in the process okay. of, of, of wrangling all of that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As this all goes along, and as you said, it wasn't probably until pretty late in the process that you knew you had a good thing because you'd seen this early cut. It was, yeah, I'm sure, with VFX and stuff that had to be added and all of that. Like, yeah. it was, who knows, mixing. But um, what did you find to be the most uh, demanding aspect of that one? Because it's kind of, a, it, it's not kind of, it's totally amazing. The, I, di- I, I didn't, you know. Right, no? No, it's hard work, but I think, you know, in fact, I remember... Someone who shall remain nameless when we did the awards campaign. I'm so indiscreet, but when we did the awards campaign, someone who shall remain nameless said to me, um, you got to stop saying you had a great time. you got to make it sound like you were plowing your soul. Come on, you got to sell it as being a dark, turbulent journey, you know, where you it nearly cost you your sanity and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't leave the character behind for a right. year. and. I just can't do that. Right. I can't do it. I just think it's nonsense. Right. I had a great time. It was a joyous, creative episode in my life. And I went home at the end of every day on Rocket Man feeling great because 
it was hard, hard work, mm -hmm. but it was good work. Yeah. And we were doing good work. And I knew everyone was doing good work. And I felt like I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And there was nowhere else in the world I was supposed to be. And that's a really bloody good feeling. And I wasn't going to then go out and pretend to everyone that I'd had a really miserable time. And it nearly <laughs> drove me insane because, I don't know, you know, it's... Right. It's a good move for the campaign, but no, that's uh, I know. Who knows? No, no, maybe, to, maybe I should. No, but have I, maybe I, I admire. Been a story. I admire your integrity. <laughs> no, so okay. So the big moment is at Cannes. We've all kind of uh, on the journalist side of things been there, where it can either go very right or very wrong. Like these guys are not afraid to boo. They yeah. sometimes they'll give a 15 minute standing ovation, but whatever the equivalent of that on the flip side is, that happens too. This, I believe, was Elton's first time seeing them finished cut seen it finished it was yeah so and you're sitting next to him yeah they put me next to him yeah i mean w what's going through your mind i mean so much really i was there with seven of my best friends from school i made paramount well i asked paramount <laughs> if i could bring a whole crew of me and paramount were amazing they were so great to work with and that whole whole experience the whole press tour they were just so accommodating so anyway i was backed up by them my girlfriend at the time my family and um, and I and I, I don't know. What did I feel? Of course, I felt apprehensive. You know, it was, it was a big moment in my life. It was very exposing. But I felt good about the the work. And um, <laughs> I was probably most nervous about how Elton would react. Sure. Really, and but, but I also knew him quite well by then, and I knew he knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew. And of course, David. The other thing, he hadn't been exposed to the final thing, but David, David had. had to be happy, and, yeah. and David had to be happy yeah. for it to get to that stage. Right. So it was not gonna. It wasn't as much as it sounds like it was this big. I was pretty confident he was going to be pleased. I had no idea what the audience would think because right. I'd heard all those stories, even though it was my first time there. Exactly as you just said, and um, and I didn't know if it would feel too. I mean, I knew there was a great character arc at the center of it but i didn't know if it would feel too just by virtue of the fact it's elton then he's a very commercial artist i didn't know if he was i don't know i don't know i didn't know how it would go so it ends and yeah they went nuts they went nuts they went nuts and elton yeah. said elton started crying and i can't remember what he said but he hugged me and he was very pleased well, I'll just say what he told the New York Times out of Cannes. Oh, I mean, what, did you expect me to remember what he no, told no, the no. New York I'm, Times? I'm, I'm, I, just wondered, I wondered what he said to you, but I'll tell for our listeners, quote, when I watch the movie, I don't see an actor, I see myself. And that is an extraordinary thing for an actor to do, close quote. I mean, that's pretty high yeah, praise. That's nice. It's, well, I, I, and it went on for the next yeah, there was, 10 months yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was yeah. amazing. You know, yeah. we immediately then went down to the beach yes. and you know celebrated for a couple of hours and then Elton and I sang and mm -hmm. you know and uh, it was just amazing I got you know he's lived a life less ordinary and I got to be you know I got to bask in that glow for a while and be some semblance of him for a little while and it was intoxicating oh, I mean I couldn't do it full time, <laughs> and I don't know how he does. He's ama he's amazing. Totally. Um, and if anyone wants a reminder, they, this uh, Disney Plus thing of his final concert, which you were at at yeah, Dodger Stadium, yeah, 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 yeah it yeah. just showed like this guy. It's unbelievable. He's now how old? Seventy six, I believe he was yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's great. Well, so for you, as we mentioned, the, you know, he was happy. New York Times 
article separately says, quote, no one delivered a gutsier film performance in 2019 than Taron Edgerton, close quote. You win the Golden Globe, all this stuff, the BAFTA. And I wonder, though, then there's this moment, which is sort of the reverse, I guess, of when you thought, what is it going to be if I'm coming out of three flops in a row? Now you've got a big hit. And I think for a lot of people, it's a tough question. Like, how, what do you do next to not squander whatever, the momentum, the, yeah. the goodwill? And it, and you did. It seems like there was a little bit of a period where you contemplated before you jumped onto the next thing, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a natural break because the world stopped. Right. You know, so and that was. It was tough in a way because I think I did feel like. I. I felt like I wasn't necessarily able to capitalize on that momentum in the way that I would have liked. Mm -hmm. Because had that not happened, I, I feel like I probably would have worked very consistently for, for a year and tried to, you know, but it didn't work out that way. And, and maybe it wouldn't have been any different, but it did feel a bit like, oh, what now? Right, of all times. <laughs> of all times now, right. you know? Um, but yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to pivot. A bit like when that first, I've always wanted to pivot. And when I did the first Kingsman and right. I said to Matt, I want to play something completely opposite and I want to play something that I don't have to look good for. I want to do, I want to play a character. And and then, you know, he brought me that Eddie the Eagle thing. I felt the same way after Rocket Man. It's like, okay, well, I've just done something in glorious Technicolor mm -hmm. where I'm peacocking all <laughs> over the place in multicolored feathers you know now i want to do something grounded and dark and heavy i want to do something heavy i want to play a role where i am heavy and and then you know there were a few things that were offered to me during the pandemic that would you know all of them with the caveat of who knows when this is going to get made but it was it was in july of 2020 that i got the script for um, what was at the time called In With The Devil, mm -hmm. um, which is based on a memoir by James Keane. And uh, it was, uh, might have been five episodes at the time, and I just knew it was absolutely what I had to do next. So we'll just tell folks, obviously it becomes Blackbird, but Jimmy Keane, drug dealer sent to prison, has a chance to be let out early if he can extract the locations of the victims of a serial killer played by Paul Walter Hauser. I wonder if you can talk about – you. I think you were also an executive producer of this one. You clearly were like all in on it. And yeah, I mean that's – I mean to be honest, you know, if I'm completely candid, that's a sort of – in that capacity is a fairly tokenistic role. Right, yeah. um, you know, it, it's a really lovely thing because it's quite a good way to signal to the world that you want to have a greater say in – or a greater – degree of autonomy in the yeah. stories and the work that you're a part of but really it's you can't I can't claim that I was I wasn't giving Dennis script notes you know <laughs> I don't think I'd have stayed in the role very long Dennis if I was giving Lane, Dennis right. Lane yeah, script yeah. notes right. so it was more about you know having a seat at the table for conversations around casting you know I was quite impassioned about Paul being the guy I wanted to be opposite and let and me ask you about that because that's a huge decision that kind of thing. yeah that's a big this that's it's a I don't know, maybe it's cliche, like cat and mouse type thing or whatever, but it's it's a two-hander. Mm. Yeah. If either one of you is wrong, this thing goes down the toilet. What sold you on Paul Walter Hauser? Well, I think there were other actors around who were being talked about, and they were all... Um, they were all very, very good, but they were all alpha males. And um, 
And I was very, very concerned that I was going to end up in a, in a dynamic where I was competing to be the toughest guy with someone. Prison show um, about very out of control masculinity and they're both aggressive in different ways. And I didn't, it was actually, Jimmy is playing against his toughness most of the time. And actually, you know, Larry's meek. And uh, I'm not saying that Paul can't do mm -hmm. alpha because Paul can do anything. Yeah. But I, but what I had seen in Richard Jewell was a quality of being very, very active as a protagonist, but whilst being very passive. He's a, he's got he does he does passive very well mm -hmm. without being boring or mm -hmm. back foot. And uh, I, I just. And also as well, I felt the other actors that were being spoken about were stars and a bit like um, Buffalo Bill. I think he's better. Paul's, you know, done lots of stuff and he was known in the industry, but I wouldn't say, you know, instantly recognisable. And I think that's helpful too. And I just felt that, I don't know, it was an instinct thing, but I felt Paul was the right guy and kind of petitioned and, and, it, and it all worked out. Totally. A perfect pick. And... You guys, six months? Had you ever had that long of a... I guess El playing Elton was over a long period, but... Yeah, not the shoot, though. Not no, the shoot, yeah. yeah. So was this doing uh, long-form television mm. a, something that you... How did you respond to that way of working? I loved it. Yeah? Yeah, maybe it's because... Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I, I loved it. I don't know if it was because it was episodic, but there's... Anything where you any as a as a as a leading actor, anything where you have a character who changes over the course of a story, and you have to track that whilst not shooting chronologically, is very 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 stimulating, and it's really creatively rewarding. And um, Blackbird's the best writing that I've ever dealt with, without shadow of a doubt. You know, even Rocket Man, which is brilliant, it's not it's not it's and there's a great character at the centre of it. It's it's not Blackbird's got a lot of layers going on, you know, and and it was wonderful to, to work with that material it's a marathon and it's hard you know particularly hard when it's covid and you're away from everybody you know and love for over six months but i wouldn't change it it was awesome yeah. it was great 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 job i know paul a little bit just from covering him over the years and talk to him about this and he, he seemed to have been really affected by the darkness of this character and i, yeah. I got the sense from him that uh that was probably something that impacted both of you. I know you said, like, you know, that can be overly played up by people when they are talking about a project. But in this case, I mean, yeah, I think, but I think, I think in this case, it's slightly different because you know we don't ever want to talk about things like pedophilia and abuse. We do, we as a society, we'd rather largely pretend they're not there, and understandably so. But that's not what Paul and I, particularly Paul were able to do. They are you know, there are actual conversations depicting the specifics of abuse and um, murder. Mm -hmm. um, and it was rough. And, you know, Paul, I'm only saying this because Paul has spoken about it himself. I think yeah. Paul also had stuff going on in his life that was making his time doubly challenging. Yep. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was a tough time for Paul. But, it, you know, He's the kind of actor that I really enjoy working with because he doesn't let his... It's not like he was letting that get in the way of the work or letting his process 
making he wasn't a, he wasn't a pain in the ass to work with. He was mm -hmm. a joy to work with, collaborative, good communicator about the work. And we checked in with each other and checking in is always in any relationship, in my opinion, mm -hmm. be it platonic, romantic, familial, ch checking in's good. Sure. And that's what me and Paul did. You also had an interesting actor playing your father who yeah. it's very sad we lost Ray Liotta not yeah. long after. But you've talked about it as being a, a meaningful thing to get to kind of share scenes with him. Yeah, it was weird. It was just the weird. I've never I suppose I'm I suppose I'm not working against my own rule but i did that did that did get to me and i did feel a kind of uh a kinship with him um i think because he's not a peep i always talk about him in the present tense but i i, I think because he wasn't a people pleasing gushy person i think the the connection felt i trusted the connection because i felt it without him demonstrating it. I felt a, a sort of, uh, a f just a, I don't know, just a strong connection with him. I think the, the relationship that Dennis wrote on the page is very beautifully articulated because of its inarticulacy. Um, you know, I always, the first time you meet Big Jim, Dennis writes something like, um, Jimmy loves and adores his father unreservedly. Uh, Big Jim loves and adores his son right back. This is not always a good thing. Uh -huh. And they, 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 and I think what he means by that is that those two men romanticize each other and they're both fucked up and they're uh -huh. both highly, highly imperfect, but neither of them wants to acknowledge it. My, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the show is one of the early scenes with Big Jim and Jimmy where um, he says, I never wanted this for you. And Jimmy says, no, no, I know. And he goes, you know, he says, I wanted a totally different deal. And, and Jimmy accepts it. And then he changes his mind. He goes, like, what? And he says, you know, I wanted a wife, kids. And it's what you see on screen is Jimmy going, Jimmy processing it because he's never said that to him before. And then there's a change. And he puts the mask on and gets back into the role play of their relationship where he says, oh, no, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I never mentioned it before. And it's just so well written that because it's not written in... It's not told. It's 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 written in the, it's in the subtext that they are, that they have this relationship where they don't say what they mean. They love each other, but they don't say what they mean. And in that moment of stress, Jimmy breaks and deals with the reality of it. But his father evades him, mm -hmm. and it's tragic mm -hmm. because they're not communicating. They think they are, but they're not communicating. Well, is it overly uh, over analyzing this to talk? You know, to say that. In very different forms, it just seems like whether it's the relationship with Paul's character and his own brother, or your so your character and his father, and of course the the your character and Paul's character, um, it's almost like an exploration of toxic masculinity. Yeah, I think that's what it, I think that's what it is. I think you know that that phrase toxic masculinity has become a bit cute, mm -hmm. but it, but it but it. I don't mean that in a disparaging no, no, way, no. but it, because I've, I've used the same phrase, but it, but it is that it's you know what Dennis is interested in. I think is what why men are a mess and fuck up the world. You know, <laughs> just I, a small little <laughs> yeah, you know, and and he he does that in microcosm, but it speaks volumes about what it you know historically has meant to be a, a, a man and. Um, 
and it's uh, it's it's you know interesting fertile territory. Totally. Um, so this project, which I believe was the first of now three that you've done with Apple, yeah, because uh, Tetris came after this, and now there's another one on the way. Yeah, uh, but have something go out to the world on a single day and get. I mean, yeah, I mean, Rocket Man was seen all over the world and continues to be on planes and everything. But like, is there sort of an instant feedback that's that's uh, different and cool about doing TV with these streamers that just have such a massive reach? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's just very exciting to, especially when the storytelling is taught as it is in Blackbird and 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 Pacey you know the the ability to let a character grow uh, over a, a more protracted period of time is really it's really rewarding as an actor if you've got the if the writing's there it's nice you know that's why the greatest characters of all time and probably in my opinion well, I don't know, this is a bit of a grand statement, but certainly in my limited experience of things, when I think of the greatest characters of all time, I think of Tony Soprano, mm -hmm. and I think of Walter White. Mm -hmm. I, you know, um, I think you ca it, you're, you're able to sit, you're able to, you know, like when you think of Walter White, I always think of the moments where he's doing nothing right. or looking at a bit of mustard on someone's tie or, you know, those are the, you, you, there's not there's not as much opportunity for that in film because you've got to get on and tell the story. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I've, I love working with Apple and I love episodic storytelling and I'm about to do another one with them uh, and with Dennis. Do you see, though, like uh, you were talking about earlier, you know, being one of the last leading men of the theatrical era in a sense. Yeah, right? I, don't know, I don't think I'll be one of the ones that everyone remembers, but I was one well, of them. Well, <laughs> time will tell. But the thing is, like we are entering a, it feels like a new era. Do you believe that given, I mean, it used to be that if you were a person who established yourself in film and then were working on TV, things were going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Now that's completely out the, out the window. So I'm wondering if you know, given the, how much of film these days is dominated by remake sequels, adaptations of pre-existing IP, blah, blah, blah. Like, do you imagine that you will have more of your work th in TV than film moving forward? I, um, I don't know. I'd like to do both. I'm con I will consciously fight to do both. Mm -hmm. I know that the writing I'm offered is better in TV. I, I'd I'd love to be an indie darling, but that's that's not that's not the path that my life has taken. Um, and I feel incredibly lucky to have someone like Dennis Lehane writing for me. And I'm feeling very very lucky to be a part of the conversations about television projects that I have in development. Um, and it, it, it to, whether I'm right or wrong about this, to me, it feels like writers are drawn to that medium. Mm -hmm. I suspect because there's more money there. <laughs> um, and I, I'd like to do both, you know. I have a movie coming out on Netflix, hopefully at the end of this year, because mm -hmm. if not, it's going to be the end of the following year because it's a <laughs> Christmas movie. But it, I'm really excited about it. But it's, it's, a, it's an action caper. Me and Jason Bateman running around an airport. Mm -hmm. 
and I want to do that kind of thing. You know, the opportunities for theatrical release are quite limited mm -hmm. if you unless you know you're either doing a cool little a24 or it feels like you're doing a marvel right. you know and and there's not a lot in between so if you want diversity i i just want to do different things mm -hmm. both in terms of the characters i play and the modes in in which that story is told maybe even occasionally theater which i know you've gone back to yeah i'd love to yep. i'd absolutely love to um so, yeah, I, I love that I've got this relationship with Apple, and that's terrific. Um, but equally, you know, I, I think Matthew and I, you know, we're now, this August will be the decade anniversary of our friendship and working relationship. And I was with him yesterday, and I think if he gets his way next year, we are going to shoot a Kingsman movie. Oh, and cool. I don't know if it will end up in screens, but on screens rather, but I think it might. And that will be a thrill for me again, because it will be a few years since I've started something that's been in cinemas. And that is something I'd really like to, to experience again. So yeah, I, I, I want to do, you know, the Dennis Lehane highbrow explorations of the messed up side of what it is to be a man. But I also occasionally want to, you know, throw a blade leg in Samuel L. Jackson's chest, you know? It's, that's like what I want, I want the, I'm, I don't want to be precious. I don't care, I, what, the one thing that I am finding increasingly refreshing in my life, in my 30s is I have realized I'm not cool. I'm never gonna be cool and I don't want to be cool. I want to be warm, I want to do good work and I want to have a good time and do stuff I'm proud of because cool is so fucking boring. I just don't want to. Do you know what I mean? And the reason I say that is because I, I, I just don't want to be precious about what I what I do. Right. I just want to do different stuff. Thanks for all the great work. Thank you for doing this. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.